0: Listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Well, it's great to see y'all. It's good to be back here. And uh, to open God's word with you this morning, uh, somebody might say, what do you do on a sabbatical? Um, uh, I traveled around a few different places and was able to just kind of uh, relax and read and pray and spend time with my wife. And so that's always good when I have an opportunity to spend time um, with my my wife. And um, what what happens in your heart during those times? Just briefly, I can say the first couple of weeks, um, I just couldn't help but remember all of my failures. It just came, I, I didn't ask for it, it just came. Just failure and sin and, and different, different things just came cascading down. And then after I got through the first five years of my life, I said, well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe pick this up at next uh, sabbatical. I don't know, so uh, we'll see. Um, spent, uh, spent time traveling. Um, somebody asked me, what, what, what did you get out of this time? And I, the thing that keeps resonating in my heart over and over again, as all of us go through many changes in life, um, as churches go through changes in transition, I just sensed the Lord saying to me, again, this is just me, I take full responsibility for what I'm fixing to say, um, I just sensed the Lord saying, you know, trust me, just trust me, and uh, and that brought peace uh, to my heart. And so, um, but this morning we're here to open God's Word, and we're in the 13th Psalm, And so um, I want you to turn there, just six brief verses. We're in, some are in the Psalms, and I've entitled uh, the 13th Psalm, When the Promise is Bigger Than the Problem. And we know about problems. Chris just mentioned um, a funeral that we had. um, A lady that's a partner at the the McDonough campus, her daughter was killed, 18 years old. How, How do you... How do you process that? How do you deal with that? How do you ever, you don't ever get over that. But, but how do you make it at least into that experience? When you hear about that, it kind of puts the, the, the issue of the soggy waffle fries, at the drive-through in perspective, doesn't it? Because there are a lot of simple things that make us feel like life is just falling apart and then we hear about something like that. I remember as a young man injuring my ankle and I walked into the emergency room at New Hanover uh, Memorial Hospital in Wilmington, North Carolina and on it, I wanted some help. I wanted some attention. My ankle was hurting and I would get up and limp around on the crutches and finally I made my way out in the hallway and there happened to be a lady standing there and a doctor coming out and the doctor just blurted out right there in the hallway to that lady. He has expired. And he was talking about her 10-year-old son. And she just crumbled right there in the floor. How do we make it through those times? In Psalm 13, David is facing the darkest days of his life. And so this morning, I want to open to Psalm 13 as we do every week, opening the Scriptures and looking at the text and reading from the text and spending, hopefully, the majority of these few minutes that we have together in the text of Scripture this morning. Psalm 13, beginning in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's the first section. I'm calling that David's problem. There is an immediate problem. There is an ultimate problem. The second thing we see in verses 3 and 4 is David's plea. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And then finally, we see David's perspective. Verse 5, But, the circumstances haven't changed. But David says, But, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What what do we get from the text? Number one, David's problem. We, We first of all want to look at David's immediate problem. And David had a lot of problems throughout his life. Whether it was defending the sheep from from uh, from bears and lions, or standing up to a guy named Goliath, or being neglected and marginalized by his family, or dealing with Saul. And many of the Psalms are written while David is running from Saul. You got to understand while David is running from Saul that there is this sense of innocence. In other words, uh, David has not gone through the Bathsheba debacle. David has not uh, murdered Uriah. David has not is not on the other side of great Sins that really change the whole perspective and 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 uh, uh, direction of his life. But David David is on when he's dealing with Saul is more on the innocent side. He's just trying to do what God's telling him to do, and Saul is trying to stop him. But many of the psalms are written, and he's using this kind of language in those psalms. But there's not the same heaviness heaviness that is in this psalm. So this psalm is not David dealing with the issues related to Saul and Saul literally trying to kill him. Then another immediate problem in David's life was his sin, his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, his murder, his deception, the death of a child, the judgment of God, and his his issues with Bathsheba forever followed him as a cloud for the rest of his life. But this text this morning is dealing with that time period in David's life when Absalom literally turned on him. You see, Absalom, I think, was David's third oldest son, and, and, and Absalom killed David's oldest son, Amnon, and so there were some disciplinary actions that took place during that period of time. But then Absalom comes back, and Absalom was the most handsome man you have ever seen, had the most beautiful hair that you have ever seen, had the most winsome personality that you have ever seen. Absalom was this, this powerful person, The problem was that Absalom was always working an angle. Absalom was always trying to make sure he realized he wasn't going to be the king. So he felt like the only way that he could have power, that he could have recognition, that he could be the man is if he exalted himself. If he tried to cause his father, the leader of the nation, to be perceived in a weakened perspective and light, then he is going to assume The leadership of the kingdom. And that is exactly what Absalom did. He had a a chariot, you know, a classic chariot with, you know, great horses, and he had men to run before him. Everybody thought Absalom was important. And Absalom literally sat in the gate, and you can see it in 2 Samuel um, chapter 15. I think it's interesting when you look at what Samuel does there. Um, 2 Samuel 15, just to give you some idea of what's going on in David's heart and mind, because David is the king, and his, his own son tries to destroy him. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. The king really doesn't care, and the king really doesn't know what he's doing. But Absalom's here. I care for you. I'll take care of you. I'll listen to you. I'll be there for you. Share your issues with me. Right? Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, and there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. I would do the right thing. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Then Absalom, then Absalom did to all of Israel... Then thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole their hearts of the men of Israel. And it goes on. You can read about it and you can see the trouble that it caused. And David literally had to leave the city. It was interesting. I planned on preaching from this text for several weeks because I just studied it while I was on sabbatical and I heard somebody talking this week and they said, there is this thing called the Absalom Syndrome. Um, And and we mentioned it this morning to a brother. I said, this is shocking that I'm preaching from this text, and somebody mentioned the Absalom Syndrome. And and it's common in churches where there's this Absalom Syndrome where there are folks that'll come and say, you know what, The, the leaders really don't care, and the leaders really don't know what they're doing. And folks, we're going through a lot. There's a lot of transition. There's a lot of movement. And and I promise you, we as leaders are are trying to do the the things that we think are right. And and we're praying, and we're trying to look at the big picture, and we're trying to look at the small picture. Um, And I would just encourage you, I would encourage you to let's all, if we're not on the same page, to get on the same page with us. and and if and if you if you if you're, if you're in a in a side group that's just that's just having conversations and there's a lot of gossip and and by the way I've been gone for 6 weeks but before I left nobody came to me and people rarely come to me and it's not because I don't care those of you that know me know that I love you and that I care but but I would say that it undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ when the church is divided I would also say, if you're suffering from Absalom syndrome, stay away from low-hanging branches, <laughs> right? Let, let us be unified as the body of Christ. Somebody called me while I was on sabbatical, a, a dear, dear friend of mine, and they said, they said our pastor has asked for six weeks off, and they said, we've got to go to the, the personnel committee, and we've got to have it. as She said, I, I don't understand this. Can you help give me some perspective on it? Uh, I, I know the situation with the pastor, and he needs six weeks off. Not because he's done anything wrong, but he has uh, had some issues that were foisted upon him that he didn't ask for, him and his family, and he needs some time off. He needs some time off. And, I, and here's what I said to my friend. Nobody here, nobody here, hopefully. I said, you got two issues. I said, the first issue is this. I said, you've got to decide if you trust your pastor or not. Because if your pastor comes to you and says, I need six weeks off. If, if you don't trust him, you may say, well, I don't know if he should have six weeks off or not. I said, you've got to decide if you trust your pastor or not. That doesn't mean I'm not, I'm not advocating blind trust. I have no authority besides Scripture. I have no right to say anything to you with any authority that cannot be backed up by Scripture. So I'm not asking you to to trust me, Mark Powell, the fallen, broken, sinful human being. But I am asking you to trust as we we open God's Word and say, this is what God would have for us in our lives personally and and for our church corporately. But I said, you've got to decide if you trust your pastor or not. I said, secondly, if your pastor says, I got to get away, my family needs it, we're in a really bad place. I said, secondly, the second decision you've got to make is whether or not you want to be at that church. Because if you don't trust the leadership of the church, then you don't need to be at the church. I, I, I say that lovingly, and I say it with a a heavy heart because I, 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 I love you and I love our church and I love the gospel and there's so many gifted people here so I, I would just encourage you as we move forward if you don't trust the leadership then you you've, you've got to ask yourself why am I trusting these people with my soul because that's what we're dealing with here is the body of Christ and this is what this is what David is is dealing with, as he deals with his son in his darkest hour, he's dealing with his very own son that is turned on him and undermining his leadership. And these literally were the darkest days of David's life. It is a time of unprecedented brokenness. It is a time of unprecedented hopelessness. It is a time of unprecedented sorrow. It is a time of unprecedented pain. Any of us with children could imagine the situation that David is in. Most of us think that could never happen to us. But here David is, and he's struggling. But that's not in the text. It's the context of the text. But in in Psalm 13, we not only look at the immediate problem, but we see the ultimate problem. And the ultimate problem is this. And this is always the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is the absence of the presence of God. The problem is not what Absalom is doing. The problem is not what's happening in the kingdom. The problem is not that David is having problems and has had problems throughout his life. The problem that he's facing is the absence of the presence of God. You see, God is nowhere to be found in any of these circumstances. God is nowhere to be found in David's darkest hour at the lowest point of his life. But the problem is not the problem. The problem is the deafening absence of God in the midst of the problem. And that's why in the text, David says it four times. And he says it four times for a reason. And we need to make note of that in the inspired word of God. How long? How long? How long? How long? He says how long four times because he is in deep, deep distress. One day of family conflict would be unbearable one episode would be enough but this this problem with Absalom just seems to be unending Absalom is out of control and he is conniving and he is scheming and his attacks and antics are without resistance or remorse or or buffer and and there just doesn't seem to be a way forward and so how long how long how long how long is this problem going to be here And he adds a tag to each how long. How long will you forget me forever? It's been so long since I sensed your presence or saw you move in my plea or saw you do anything but let Absalom just run roughshod over the purposes of God and the kingdom that you have established through me, David would say. Will you forget me forever? And the word forever means continually, without interruption, without even a ray of divine intervention, without any sign of God anywhere. Will you forget me forever? This thing is so incessant. This thing is so constant. It is so dominating. I can't breathe, David would say. How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face forever? God, will you absolutely forever refuse to even look into this? God, I need you. I need you to look into this thing. But God's not even looking into it as far as David. Is concerned. There always seems to be this assumption that when affliction is protracted that God is absent. God is distant. And at best, God is unconcerned and doesn't care. And that's where David, the man after God's own heart, the man who had seen God move in so many amazing ways. How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face forever? How long will anxiety dominate my soul? And that's what he's saying. Here in the text, if, if you look at, at verse number two, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? This is the voice that is constantly informing me these circumstances David is saying the this is what's counseling me I can't think I can't imagine I can't plan I can't decide I can't eat I can't sleep because this calamity with my son Absalom is is screaming at me incessantly and I can't see anything else how long Lord This is the lens that I look at all of life through, David is saying. This is what the counsel is. This is the the only counsel that he could receive. And he's got to be asking, is there a God? And if there there is a God, is he good? And if there is a God and he is good, does he care? And if there is a God, does he care about me? And if there is a God, why isn't he doing something about it? And so David is having this internal counseling session going on within himself. Luther said a rather lengthy quote, "'When the unhappy man finds that God feels toward him in this manner described, it then happens to him as follows. That is, his heart is a raging sea in which all sorts of counsels move up and down. He tries on all hands to find a hole through which he can make his escape. He thinks on various plans and still is utterly at a loss what to advise.'" As soon as the face of God is turned away from us, presently follow consternation, distraction, darkness, and the understanding and uncertainty of counsel, so that we grope, as it were, in, in midnight and seek everything and seek everywhere how we may find escape. This is where David is. This is all I can see. This is all I can think about. Has anybody ever been there? Anybody just, just, you just had a problem and it just consumed you? It's all you could see. It's all you could think about it. It dictated everything within you and around you and every relationship. Finally, he says, how long will my enemy, my opponent and your opponent, this deceiver and schemer and divider and liar, who has broken every rule and committed every sin and violated every scripture, how long will he succeed? It's a good question. Why, is, why am I, God, calling out to you and everything's falling apart? And why is he, God, opposing everything about you succeeding? We ask that question, I think, many times. Where are you, God? You see, the problem is not Absalom. The problem is the absence of the presence of God in the midst of the problem. So we see David's problem. Secondly, we consider in verses 3 and 4 David's plea. He says in verse 3, he says in verse 3, consider. Look at verse 3 of chapter 13. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He says he's asking God to do two things. He's asking God to consider him. He's saying, God, would you please look? Would you behold? Would you see? Would you have some respect for me in the pain that I'm in? Would you hear me? Would you answer me? He's saying, God, enough of the silent treatment. Please consider me. I cannot stand one more second of this deafening silence and pervasive absence. Let me know that you are looking into this situation and that you have not forgotten me. God, would you consider me? Secondly, God, would you enlighten me? Would you bring hope to my heart so that my outlook will not be so gloomy and dark? When, when you look in my eyes, you see that there is darkness, but I want my eyes to be enlightened because I see that you are considering this. And in your consideration of this problem, in you and you alone, God, considering this problem, it is going to enlighten my eyes. It is going to change my outlook completely. Essentially, David is saying this, If Lord, if you do not do something, this is going to kill me spiritually and physically. And Lord, if you do not do something, my enemy is going to strut and gloat and brag. And God, that might just be at your expense, since I'm a man after your own heart. He says, lighten up my eyes, lest I sleep. The sleep of death is going to kill me. Lighten up my eyes, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. The wicked are greatly emboldened by success. Even though it is temporary. The third thing I want you to see, we see David's problem, we see David's plea. But now we come to the good part. He, he is david's plea or david's promises let me read those two verses again but but he he uses that conjunction there because he's saying that nothing in the previous four verses has changed at all he hasn't heard from god in fact things got worse he hasn't sensed that he was being considered by god He hasn't seen the the enemy give in at all. But he just stops in the middle of everything. And he says, but. And he goes back to some things that are the anchor of his life. He goes back to some things that he can hang on to in the midst of the problem that are going to move him beyond the problem into eternity. And, And we... We need this today. We need this today. You and I have no idea. Some, of, some, some, some folks know what they're going through right now. Some of us have no idea what lies ahead of us. And with our prosperity mentality, we're like, well, I mean, the Lord's just going to take care of me and everything's going to go well. That, that's just not true. That's just not true. There, there are problems and challenges challenges that await us while we are here on this earth that are going to so shake us up in time that our hearts are going to be shifted into a longing for eternity. And that is a good thing. And that is a good thing. But, but consider David's perspective. And here's where he is. And when he says but, here's what he's saying. If nothing changes and if It all goes from bad to worse. David says, I have an anchor. In his moment of clarity, he sees beyond the problem to the promises of God. Listen, the only way you and I are going to ever make it in life is if we see beyond the problems that are suffocating us to the promises of God that give us life now and in eternity. Unfortunately, we're stuck in self-counsel. Unfortunately, we're stuck looking in the mirror. Unfortunately, we're looking down. Unfortunately, we are weighted down by the problems that we find ourselves in. And the only way we're going to believe in God is if He changes the problems. But David would say, you need to believe in God when the problems are at their worst. And if they don't change, you still need to trust Him, even if the problem never goes away. So what is David saying here in these two verses? Number one, look carefully at the text. He says, but I have trusted. Those are in the past tense. There is something happened. There is something that happened in David's past that he is hanging on to that now is emerging in the moment in the depths of his problem. I'm glad somebody's excited this morning. Amen. Praise the Lord. May your tribe increase, young man. So 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 David is saying I'm going back to something that his has sustained me. He said I settled this foundational issue a long time ago. I rested my soul on this fundamental issue a long time ago. When all else fails, I will cling with all of my strength to this one thing, but I have trusted. And he uses the word your, this word that indicates there is uh, a relationship. In other words, God... I may not see you and I may not sense you and you may not be moving and things may go, be going from bad to, to worse, but I'm still going to talk to you. I'm still going to have conversation with you. I'm still going to move toward you like you hear me. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, your unending love, your unbreakable love for me. Let me just say a couple of things about steadfast love. We were created to love and be loved everlastingly. We were created to love and be loved everlastingly. We were created to love and be loved with the love that transcends action or circumstance. In other words, it is a love that can't be broken. And that is what he's saying. I will trust in your love for me that can't be broken. But we've got to, if we're going to understand, if we're going to feel the weight of steadfast love, we've got to understand that we were created to love and be loved everlastingly. We were created to be permanently, joyfully, fulfillingly attached to God and others. That's the beauty of Genesis 2.24. For this call, shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. Permanently attached. Permanently attached to each other. We were created to be permanently, joyfully, fulfillingly attached, both humanly and divinely. We all long to be loved everlastingly, to be attached permanently, to be safe, to live in a relationship where there is no threat of detachment, where there is no threat of somebody saying, I'm done with you, you crossed the line, it's over, I stop loving you, we're done, get out, leave. We all long to be loved everlastingly, attached permanently safe, no threat of detachment. But the fall ruined our capacity for that. The fall ruined our capacity for that. That's why relationships don't last. That's why most of us magnify the problems in our relationship and not the joys of our relationship. That's, 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 that could be the testimony of so many of us, we have seen and been a part of and experienced the brokenness of relationship. And every, listen, every, I would venture to say that every problem that is in this room right now today is the product on some level uh, from from your upbringing or your relationship with your parents or your parents' relationship with you or your marriage or some relationship all the problems in this room are rooted in our inability to love the way that we were created to love and to find the love that we were created to be loved with we were created to love everlastingly um, to love steadfastly and to be loved everlastingly. To be loved steadfastly, and the fall has ruined that. And all of us sit here today in our brokenness as a product of messed up relationships. But there's good news. Our longing to be loved can, loved everlastingly, can only be satisfied in a relationship with the Creator through the sacrifice of His Son for our sin our longing to be loved everlasting which every one of us guys I've done so, so much premarital counseling and these couples sit in front of me and you 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 would you would just think that this this what's in this room the energy the power the love the way they look at each other the way they talk the way they touch each other I mean it's just this this will never end and it does it does and, and so here here's what what I'm telling you in order to satisfy that longing for everlasting love you you you're not probably not going to find it in another human being right you're probably not going to find it in another human human being In other words, you're going to try to extract that from somebody else and get them to satisfy it when they don't have the capacity to satisfy it. But if you will run to to God who sent His Son to put this steadfast love on display and He demonstrated this steadfast love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. That's love. That's love. I love John 10, 11, where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You want to know what good is? Good is when one who is perfect comes and sacrifices himself for the sake of and the sin of those that he loves so that he can bring them into an everlasting, steadfast love relationship that will never be broken and he himself is dependent upon sustaining and maintaining that relationship. The the greatest thing that you and I could ever do is come to grips with the love that Christ has for us and believing that he loves us and resting in that love. Now when He does that. Our hearts are transformed. And now we, out of His energy and His love and His strength, have the capacity to move toward others with an unearthly, heavenly love that can sustain relationships, that can give life. And so we see David saying that in the midst of the pain And in the midst of the suffering, and in the midst of this messed up relationship with my third son, Absalom, I I find that there is a satisfaction for this longing of repair in relationship in the everlasting love of Almighty God. And David, listen to me, David believed in all of that having no understanding of the cross of Calvary. David doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know that. He he understands the exodus. He understands events in history, but but he can't see what we look back on and see this love demonstrated and written for us in 27 books of the New Testament. Your deepest longings and the deepest longings of everyone. Listen of everyone who has ever been created, can only be satisfied in this, our deepest desire, to be in an everlasting love relationship with the one who created me and everyone else he created. And that backdrop magnifies David's pain in this scenario. He sees this everlasting love. He longs to love Absalom that way, and he longs for Absalom to understand that love. I would ask you this morning, are you resting in his steadfast love this morning? Can you say, this is killing me? This is killing me. But the assurance of his love transcends my pain. I have trusted in your steadfast love. We struggle with that, don't we? I do. You say, how in the world do you spend two weeks going over your sin? Because I have the accuser screaming at me. And I have the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross cross of Calvary for me. I have the accuser screaming at me. And I've got an advocate who walks into the courtroom and says, now we're fixing to go in here before the judge. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit there and keep your mouth shut let me do all the talking. Hallelujah. That's love. That's love. The second thing we see in this text, I I have trusted, verse 5, in your steadfast love, "My, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The word heart here literally in the Hebrew is translated will, feelings, intellect, The center of my being. In other words, this is not just something that I glibly say, like we say many things that are spiritual and biblical and they just roll off of our lips, or they're very rational or ritualistic or stoic or some mental exercise. These are not just words of truth known in the head, though they are words of truth found in Scripture. There must be more. This truth, he is saying, must be known experientially. My heart shall rejoice. I'm not just coming and gathering with the believers and saying things and not even thinking about what I'm saying, but I am rejoicing. My heart shall rejoice. Here's David in his deepest pain rejoicing. Because there is this hope of eternal deliverance that is woven into the fabric of his being. That's what he's saying. I've got this, this rejoicing in my heart because I know that you are the deliverer and ultimately maybe not in this life and maybe Absalom will win and maybe Absalom will kill me, but I know that you ultimately will deliver me and we have to grab a hold of that. Because, folks, listen to me. Many of us, our lives may end in misery. And many of us, the problems that we're suffering with now may never be resolved. And we may end up with physical calamity that is never healed. We've got to cling to something that is outside of this world. I read, I don't know who I read. I read so many different people. But I think it was C.S. Lewis that spoke to the issue of relationships. And all relationships end in pain. They just do. I've been married for 43 years. And one day, if Jesus doesn't come back, our relationship will end. The way I felt when I got up this morning, I thought it was going to be today. Thought I was going to die. Thankfully, I made it. Maybe, Maybe I'll die after I get through here. I don't know. I'm hoping she'll be sorrowful if that happens. Amen. All all, all relationships end in pain. Folks, there better be something besides what this world can produce that we have set our heart upon and that we rejoice in. God, God is so good. He's done all of these wonderful and amazing things for me. There better be more than that. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Our hope and ultimate salvation must rise above our circumstances. This light momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I I just interject this thought. We have this, this process of thinking where we're just like, no one should hurt and no one should suffer. If you do some research, you find out that it was that mentality that was the guiding mantra behind the proliferation of opioids in our generation. The, the, the producers of opioids said nobody should ever hurt and nobody should ever suffer. And David isn't saying that. David isn't saying that nobody should ever hurt and nobody should ever suffer. He's saying in the midst of the suffering there is still something to rejoice in if your hope is in the deliverance that ultimately comes in Jesus Christ. Finally, he says, I will sing. I will sing. I will sing to the Lord. Singing is the gift that God has given us to release what stirs within us when we experience reality deep within our soul. Singing is the gift that God has given us to release what stirs within us when we experience His deep reality within our soul. Whatever is deep within our soul is released through our singing. If, if what is in your soul is anger, it will be released in your singing. If what is in your soul is debauchery, you know, if you just want some more liquor in your cup, it's going to come through you singing. I turned on, a, I was driving up I-25 going from Denver to, to Wyoming and I found a country station. And I mean, I just, I just wanted to pull over and get drunk before I got where I was going. And I don't drink, so. I, I mean, it's, it's, it, whatever is in your soul is going to come out in your music. Music. Whether it's sensuality or despair or hope, I love I used to love James. I used to love depressive singers. James Taylor and Carly Simon, all these different people, so sad, broken relationships, y'all don't know who they are. David is saying, I'm in the midst of trouble, but I'm going to sing, I'm going to release. What is in me, what God has put in me, I will sing to the Lord because He has past tense dealt bountifully with me. He has been good to me and that goodness is going to sustain me now and it is going to deliver me in the future. I will, I will sing. There's a lot of folks with good voices. Not as many as you think. Amen. You, you don't you don't sound as good in church as you do in the car or in the shower, but keep singing, Amen. <laughs> there are a lot of good voices, but the most beautiful songs flow out of the afflicted soul that trusts in the ultimate salvation of God through His Son, even in. And especially in our darkest hour. It is that, that, that soul that can, when, when there is no hope, when there is no light, where there is no healing, where there are no solutions, when, when your soul can cry out, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. And righteousness. That's the most beautiful singing. I, I, early on in, in my granddaughter, Edith's life, Martha would sit and play the piano. And Edith, even before she was two years old, would just make noises. Martha would start playing. Edith would start making noises. It was a beautiful sound, the most beautiful sound in the whole world. As you see a, a kid whose body was twisted and mangled, from birth, it was the most beautiful sound in all the world. And, and in our pain and in our sorrow and in our hopelessness, there is something to hope in. And even if our circumstances don't change, folks, listen to me, God has dealt bountifully with us. And that's enough. And that's enough. Just two questions and I close. Where are you this morning? What are you going through that you can't bear? You've prayed and prayed and you're still praying, but nothing has changed. That's where David is. He prayed and he prayed and he's still praying, but nothing has changed. Has anybody here ever prayed for something and what you prayed for didn't come to pass? He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he needed God to intervene and he needed God to do something, but nothing changed. What are you going through today? That might be physical, that might be relational, that might be financial. And is it pushing you away from God? Or are you running to Him saying, I'm going to trust in your steadfast love? You have dealt bountifully with me. I'm going to sing to you. I'm going to rejoice because I know ultimately salvation is mine. I saw saw a, a, a person. Some of you might know him. Some of you may. He's not a part of our church. I was at Waffle House on uh, earlier in the week, and I walked in and I saw he's there every every morning. And I walked in. and I said, "How you doing?" He said, "I'm doing okay." He said, I'm about to be 70. He said, said, pray for my wife. He said, she's not doing good. In the condition she has, she's probably not going to get any better. That happens over and over and over again. And folks, this is all we have. This is all we have, trusting in his steadfast love, hearts rejoicing in his salvation, singing to him because he has dealt bountifully with us. My hope for us this morning is this. At the very center of our suffering, we will rest in a steadfast love, that we will have a steadfast faith that has eyes to see beyond the moment, knowing that There are things eternal that are presently accessible that will strengthen and sustain us in our darkest hour. And His name is Jesus. And I beg you and I plead with you to look to the cross. I plead with you to look to the one who loves you everlastingly. I plead to you to believe that He loves you this morning. And I plead with you to believe that if nothing in your life that you're going through right now ever gets resolved, that having Him and His everlasting love and the hope of salvation that's ultimately yours in eternity. That is enough to sustain us in this moment. Every week we take the bread and the juice at South Point. If you're a believer and you're in good standing with this church or if you're a part of another local church and you're visiting and you're in good standing with your church, um, I would invite you to come and join us. It's a time when we remember the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where our hope is. And we, by taking that juice and that bread, are saying that we are in good standing with each other relationally, that we are in good standing with God. I'll encourage you to come and confess sin before you come up here. If you're like me, you struggle with sin every week, every day. It's a struggle. I would encourage you to just take a minute and say, Lord, please cleanse my heart. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin this morning. I want to come and experience afresh and anew the power of the gospel as I simply remember you with these elements that have no magical powers. So if you're a believer, um, you're, you're in good standing with the family, you're in good standing with the body, um, and you are seeking the Lord this morning, and you want to remember the gospel, I invite you to come after I pray. Father, bless us now as we take uh, into consideration um, our pain, our problems, our struggles, our brokenness, our broken relationships. Lord there are those here that are that are that are facing things, and oh, they feel so alone. They've cried out for you to do something, and it sometimes just doesn't seem like you're moving And I pray that that your word this morning would offer them hope not that their situation going to change but offer them hope that there is something bigger than the situation that there are promises that are bigger than the problem and I pray that we'd walk out of here this morning resting in your love and resting in your promises and placing our hope outside of things going well on this planet and placing our hope an ultimate and eternal salvation in Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.